Thank you, Carol, for those prayers, and good morning, church. It's good to be with you all today. Whether in person or online, welcome to Community Church, and welcome to Lent. This is the first Sunday in Lent, and it's this journey, this 40-day journey to the cross, and we had two beautiful gatherings on Wednesday, on Ash Wednesday, and marking on the foreheads of the cross with ashes. And Lent is typically a time to give something up. It's a season of prayer, confession of giving. And so some people will give something up in these 40 days. Um, sometimes people will fast. They'll give up chocolate, give up streaming. I've given up various things in the past. And the idea is that in the giving up of things, then there's the taking on of something. And maybe it's prayer, the time you spent giving up whatever it is, connecting with God. Perhaps it's service. It's a, it's a season of serving others. And yesterday we had um, about 15 of us that went to the elderly and being the hands and feet of Jesus to the elderly. So take some time to reflect on this journey to the cross. I was talking with Penny before the 9.30 service, and she comes in and helps around the office on Fridays. And we had two stations set up for Ash Wednesday, and one was the cross itself, not this one, but one laying on the ground. And she was helping to lift it. And in the moment of lifting it, she told me this morning, she was reflecting on just the heaviness of the cross that Jesus bore, the cross he carried for us. And it was just a moment to connect with God. And so this is a season that is looking to the cross looking to Jesus's journey to the cross. And so the series is on flourishing faith. We've been talking about flourishing relationships, relationships with one another and ourselves, kind of these horizontal relationships. And now vertically, how do we connect with God? What does our faith look like? What does it look like to have a flourishing faith? Maybe your faith is flourishing and you're just like excited and you're going from mountaintop to mountaintop. But maybe you're in a season of rethinking, of deconstructing, of having questions and doubts. Maybe you feel like your faith is going backwards, or you haven't even started having a faith yet. And I want to say, wherever you find yourself, we are glad that you're here. This is a safe place to bring your questions, your doubts, your challenges, and your victories. Now, today we're talking about the center of our faith. If you had somebody, a friend, that wasn't familiar with the Christian faith, and they came up to you and said, what's the center of the Christian faith? What might be some of the answers you would give? Just call them out. Jesus. Jesus is always a safe answer. When I was in Sunday school, if I was called on, I just said Jesus, even if I didn't know what the question, just Jesus. You're going to be right about 50% of the time, right? Okay, Jesus, what other things might you say? The center of the Christian faith. Love, yeah, good. Repentance. Anything else? The cross. Forgiveness, good. All good answers. We're going to dig into this question today. And so before we do, let's pray. God, I thank you for this time. I thank you that we can gather today, that we can be here with one another and your Holy Spirit as we worship you. And I pray no matter where we might be in our faith, maybe walking towards, maybe walking away, maybe haven't discovered yet, I pray that you meet us in this place and that we see you a little more clearly today in your name. Amen. 
I want to start in the Gospel of Luke, and this is the famous story of this road to Emmaus, this walk to Emmaus. Jesus comes alongside these travelers and asks them what they're doing, and they're sad, and they, they basically say, haven't you heard these things that have happened, right? We had this Messiah, and they've crucified him, and we didn't see that coming, And yet, crazily enough, three days after he died, they went to the tomb and they didn't find his body. Some of the women actually said that he was alive. And so Jesus steps into this conversation and he says this. He said to them, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all the prophets, all that the prophets have spoken. It sounds a little harsh, right? Um, Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? Jesus is saying to these followers of his, right? They can't recognize that he's Jesus yet. Wasn't it so clear when you read your scriptures, we would call these scriptures the Old Testament. Wasn't it so clear in scriptures about who Jesus was and what was going to happen to him? And Obviously, it wasn't uh, to these followers, or they would have known. And then this is the sentence I want to zero in on. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. All the scriptures concerning Jesus. I imagine that was a pretty long conversation. I would have loved to have been there because I've got some questions, right? How do some of these stories, these crazy stories, actually point to you, Jesus? And this is what he says. He says, I am the point of these stories. I am where these stories are leading to. It all points to me. Every bit of it, the garden, the fall, the flood, Abraham, Joseph, Moses, Jonah, You name the story, he's saying it all points to him. He is the point of it. Greg Boyd, a pastor and an author in his book, The Cross Vision, says this, as Jesus himself taught, everything else in Scripture is to be interpreted in a way that points to him. Thus, nothing in Scripture should ever be interpreted in a way that qualifies or competes with his revelation of God. Jesus is saying here, I am the point of these. I am who these stories are pointing to. So you need to interpret these in light of me, in light of who I am. If there is a story that doesn't look like Jesus, and there are a lot of stories in the Bible that do not look like Jesus, we have to understand them through the lens of Jesus. How does that make sense? That takes some digging, that can take some real work, but this is what Jesus is trying to get them to understand. We must be missing something if it doesn't look like Jesus. Now, John, John is the last gospel to be written. He has the, you know, the wisdom of some experience. He knows the followers of Jesus have seen probably the other three gospels. The basic plot line is the same in those three, but John takes a different approach He can see the big picture a little bit better. And John makes this bold claim in John 1, 18. No one has ever seen God. And you might be wondering some of the stories in the Old Testament. It seems like they see God, right? 
even when it was just the whisper, right? What about Moses on the mountain receiving the Ten Commandments, right? There's so many stories. It seems like people had seen God, but John was like, no, no. Nobody has ever seen God until now, but the one and only Son who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father has made him known, Nobody has really seen God until they have seen Jesus. Because Jesus is the perfect revelation of God. Jesus is the focal point and center of our faith. So good job, Jesus. Yes, whoever said Jesus. Jesus is the center of our faith. People might have gotten glimpses, a partial view of who God was in the past, but Jesus is the best representation and what does Jesus say to us later in John 14, 6? Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Life flows through Jesus. He is the way of life. Living like Jesus, I think, is the best way to live. Not necessarily the easiest way to live, but the way to abundant life. Forgiveness. Forgiveness is hard, but he says, forgive and forgive and forgive. And it truly is the best way to live, giving us the most freedom. And yet, it's not just living like Jesus. Jesus is at the center, but it's also what Jesus did. Jesus points us to and lived through an event that completes the center, and it is the cross. Somebody else said the cross. Maybe you guys were listening to 930. The cross is at the center, along with Jesus. Jesus and the cross is the climax of every gospel. The proportion of the story in every gospel that's dedicated to this week of Palm Sunday to Easter is huge because they were grasping that, in fact, yes, this was the point of all of these scriptures pointing to Jesus and pointing to this very event of Jesus on the cross. This becomes the focus for Paul, the one who's written the most of our New Testament. In 1 Corinthians 2.2, 2, he says this, For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Jesus Christ and his crucifixion. This is the center of our faith. And when we talk about the cross being at the center, yes, his crucifixion and his resurrection, his death and his victory over death. Jesus at the center, the cross at the center. These are the things that are central to our faith. Brian Zahn, also a pastor, and an author says it this way, above all things, the cross as the definitive moment in Jesus's life is the supreme revelation of the very nature of God. At the cross, Jesus does not save us from God. At the cross, Jesus reveals God as Savior. This was the mission of God. This is who God is. Paul says it a different way, Romans 5, 8, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us, meaning while we were who we are, 
today, back then, in history, Christ died for us to give us this gift of life, not because of something we had done to earn it, but because of his great love. Greg Boyd goes on in explaining, never in all of eternity could God stoop further than God did for us on the cross. And the insurpassable distance God crossed on our behalf reveals the insurpassable perfection of the love that God eternally is and that God extends to us, which is why the cross must be considered to be the insurpassable revelation of God and the quintessential expression of everything Jesus was about. Now, all of the slides are on our YouTube page. Um, each week's in the description, you can click on it. Those online right now can click on them. But if you're ever wanting the quotes, some people take pictures, which is fine as well. But if you want all the slides, they are there. Greg Boyd is saying this is the ultimate demonstration of who God is and how far God is willing to go for us. It's the cross. That's how far he's willing to go. See, Christianity is not an idea, but a person. This morning, I was pulling up my Facebook feed, and the very first post, this was from somebody Erica and I were good friends with in Utah, a bit of a mentor for me. He's a physicist, and his Facebook post said this, Christianity is not a theory, it's a person. I was like, Facebook is listening to me. I posted, and I said, I have that very line in my sermon today. And it's this debate with this mathematician who is basically pointing to that Jesus as a person is the center. Not a theory, not an idea. Jesus is the center of it. See, if Christianity is a set of ideas, then we're threatened by an alternative set of ideas. Then we're just debating ideas, right? Our own thoughts. But our faith is a person, it's a reality. It's who he is and what he has done, this event of the cross itself. Jesus is God, and he desires to do life with us. Jesus is our center and his cross, his death and resurrection. And this is this Lenten journey, this 40 days of journeying to the cross and who Jesus is and what he has done. So Jesus and the cross, the center. Now I want to step back a little bit and look kind of at history, these last 2,000 years. How does this reality of Jesus being the center impact what we're going through today? We have seen massive shifts in our lifetimes both with technology, culture, politics, consumerisms, the way people connect, the fact that we have people online right now watching the service, participating in the service. We have people across all religions rethinking their faith. Many are moving away from organized religion. There's a group that's categorized as the nuns, not the Catholic nuns, but nuns, mean no religious affiliation, N-O-N-E-S. They've walked away from religions, Christianity and others, and there can be no going back. 
We might think we'd like to go back, nostalgia, go back, recapture, but we can't. It's not going backwards. And as you, we talked about if somebody asked you what the center of our faith was, and you said Jesus, the cross, redemption, forgiveness, all of that's good. If you ask people, what do they think of Christians? What might be some of the answers? Judgmental. Hypocrite. Any others? We had the same two in the first service. They also added self-righteous to it. You know, this is what comes up when you ask people about Christians. We have not done well at reflecting this Jesus to the world, have we, church? We have work to do. But we're in this, what I would say, and I came across Phyllis Tickle um, 10 years ago. She has since passed away. She was an American, Anglican, um, uh, a student of history and church, and she wrote a book called The Great Emergence, and this will be a brief summary of it. She talks about this huge shift right now that the world is in, and this is happening right now, and she goes back and says, basically, every 500 years, there is a major shift in the world, especially in the Latinized world or places that have received a Latinized form of faith, which is most of the world, actually. And so she goes back 500 years from now and says, what did this look like 500 years ago? We had the Great Reformation. At that time, basically, we'll unpack this a little bit more, there's the Catholic Church, that, that's it pretty much in the West. And so if you didn't go to church, you didn't just leave a church and go to a different one down the road. It was the church. And I could imagine, now we, I love my Catholic brothers and sisters, and some of our people are Catholics here or grew up Catholic. Um, but I could imagine if you were Catholic in that season, especially a priest, you might be really kind of nervous and anxious. What is happening here? All of our views are being challenged. People are leaving the church. They didn't consider what they were going to to be good at all. They were leaving the church. They are actually establishing their own churches. And there was huge disagreement between the leaders about what was the right belief, about what they believed, and huge fights, intense. People would kill one another because of their religious beliefs. I was reading um, John Wycliffe's uh, history this past week. Now, John Wycliffe is mostly known for writing the first English translation of the Bible before the King James Version. And I know people that are working with Wycliffe translators. This organization continues today writing the Bible into native and indigenous languages around the world. But John Wycliffe was not so well thought of in his life. And after his death, religious leaders decided that, in fact, John Wycliffe was a heretic. And you think, oh, that's really unfortunate that they would come to that conclusion. But that wasn't enough just to declare him a heretic. They decided that they would dig up his body, what was left of it, and burn it at the stake. And not only that, then throw his bones into the river. This is pretty incredible, right? Pretty harsh way of dealing with conflict. And it's a good thing the church doesn't have conflict anymore, right? <laughs> Of course we do, right? This is part of what life can be about, but we can learn from those who have gone before us. So this huge shift back in the Reformation. Before that, we have the Great Schism. This is the first major church split 
It was both cultural and language. It was both theological and geographical. You had the Western church, the Roman church, the Latin church, and then the Eastern church, the Greek church, that split during that time. We're not going to go into more of that. 500 years before that, the great decline or the great fall, we see here the end of the Roman Empire, the Council of Chalcedon. We see these major theological and cultural shifts that are happening at that time. We go 500 years before that, of course, the great transformation, Jesus Christ. We're going to talk about that next week. This idea of what did Jesus do? Jesus came into the religious environment that he was grown up with. And what does he say on the Sermon on the Mount? He says, you have heard it said, and he quotes scripture, but I say to you, this huge transformation is upon us through Jesus Christ. Now, Jewish scholars would say there's two more behind this. 500 years before Christ, we had the Babylonian captivity, the end of the first temple area for Israel. They are exiled. And then 500 years before that was the great transition between the judges and the Davidic line of kingship. So Phyllis Tickle proposes this idea of every 500 years, there's kind of a a church rummage sale where we bring everything out into the open. Those things in our, you know, in the U.S., we would have garage sales. You bring everything out. You're not sure if you need it anymore. You have to make space for something new. And so you only hold on to those things that are truly valuable to you. And you bring everything else and you, you get rid of it. And Every 500 years, the church has to go through this process. You might not like it, you might not agree with it, but it is where things are going. I was thinking back to the garage sales that Erica and I had when we moved here um, over 16 years ago now, and we had to get rid of almost everything because we were moving here and we knew we couldn't take much with us. And one of my dear possessions that I had just purchased because we didn't think we were going to be moving out of America was my Weber barbecue. I love this barbecue, man. I still think about it sometimes. And and we had had three garage sales in a row because it all had to go. We donated a bunch of stuff when we thought this stuff might be worth something. And people know you're kind of desperate at this point. You can't hide it. So this guy looks at my barbecue and he says, I'll give you three bucks for it. I was like, oh, man, I would be so offended right now if I wasn't so desperate to get rid of it. But I didn't think I could have a barbecue here. I didn't know if I could. I didn't know if we'd have a balcony, so I thought I had to get rid of it. And so I reluctantly agreed to it. And then he starts to load up all the tools and everything. I said, no, that doesn't come with the $3. So he paid me two extra bucks for the tools. And that was the last I saw of that barbecue. We only held on to the things that were most important to us, things that we wanted to endure. As Christians, what is most important to us? It has to be Jesus, and it has to be this cross. This is the hopeful thing about the great emergence, is there's a a re-centering on Jesus, a radical Jesus orientation Culture doesn't always have such a good view of Christians. We've said some of those things already, but they tend to have a favorable view on who Jesus is and his ideas. This is an opportunity for the church in the midst of all of this change. We have an opportunity to present Jesus to the world that gets at his heart, that gets at who he is, 
in the midst of all of this change, we can focus in on Jesus. I've probably had, you know, three major sort of deconstructing events, rummage sales in my theological life. And my very first one, I was just a teenager. And the things you described Christians were what my view became of Christians. And yet I knew there had to be something more to Jesus. See, I was told of you of God that somehow... God the Father is this, this angry one who, who's just looking to destroy us, but, but Jesus is the kind one. And, you know, it was almost like, well, who really is God in the first place? And somehow they're competing, and it's like it's multiple gods. And we each need to decide who Jesus is, church. But I was drawn back because of what I'd learned about Jesus. And I wanted the things he said to be true. Was it really true? So I came back to discover that. And you might be here today and you haven't really decided who Jesus is. And that's okay. It took the early church a couple hundred years to really figure out Jesus. Fully God and fully man. They begin to create the creeds as they have resonance about this and agreement about this so we can give ourselves some grace when we're figuring it out as well. There's grace for you in this process. Maybe you're exploring the faith, you're discovering Jesus. Maybe you're questioning some of what you grew up with, and that's okay too. I have had those seasons. I have had those seasons of doubt. And this is a safe place to dig into that. So what else do we see in the great emergence? We see an incredible focus on Jesus. We also see things like an importance of communal life. There's probably not a church you go to today that doesn't emphasize some type of small groups. Their desire for people to connect relationally. We have more virtual experiences of our faith, and we can see that today. COVID has accelerated a lot. There's a more inclusive sort of everybody welcome type of an environment that we see people seeking out. There's a rediscovery of the spiritual disciplines. Richard Foster's book back in the 80s was this rediscovery of these ancient practices of fasting and meditation. We have once a month a contemplative gathering to encourage us to connect with God in these important ways. So Jesus and the cross are at the center. They should be the lens that we're looking through when we look at our faith and when we look at Scripture. What does Jesus say and what does he do? He gives us the best representation of God. And this is what he does when he begins his ministry. He goes into the synagogue and he picks up the Isaiah scroll. So let's look at Isaiah 61. This is where he decides to read. He says this, the spirit of the Lord is on me. He's reading Isaiah. Because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. Good news. The gospel. Good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners. And I think maybe we could all see ourselves in those descriptions. 
Jesus is saying, this is him. This is what he has come to do. And to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, and he stops. Now, if you've got good eyesight, you might see that the last line there is struck through. Jesus did not read in the day of vengeance of our God. He could have kept reading. See, this is the Luke account where he quotes Isaiah. The spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Full stop. Jesus is moving things forward. That great transformation All of this is pointing to me, he says, and I am this. And then he continues, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. And the people rejoiced? No. (laughs) They were not happy with him. Who is this guy saying these things? They did not celebrate it. Uh, And eventually they brought him to the cross because of their anger about his message. See, Jesus reveals God fully. He moves people forward in their understanding. He meets them where they're at, and then he moves them forward because he represents God perfectly to us. I went through challenging sort of deconstructing seasons in my life, seeing the fallenness of the church, the rigidity of the faith I had grown up in, the promise of certainty. If you just believe X, Y, and Z, You can be secure in your faith. All of these promises, all of this rigidity were no longer working for me. And if you're in that place, welcome to community and to the journey. And I will say this, I've also had seasons of reconstruction that I've fallen more in love with Jesus through all of these deconstructions more in love with who he is, more in love with scriptures, more in love with the message that he brings to us and has for us. It truly is the way of flourishing. What picture do you have of God? What is the father like? I had these competing images in the church I grew up in between the father and the son, We didn't even get to the Holy Spirit. We had no idea what to think of the Holy Spirit. We knew what we didn't believe about the Holy Spirit, and it was mostly the the charismatic churches around. But what is God like? Is God hard to please? Is he vengeful? I know many Christians that say he is hard to please. I'm afraid of him. I live my faith in fear of messing up. Not sort of this fear that's a healthy respect, but when I sin, I want to run away. I'm worried I don't want to spend time with him. I know he's disappointed and he wants me to do better. Is that who God is? Or is he a God of love, full of mercy and forgiveness that somebody said earlier? Is he vengeful or is he full of love? I can give you verses that can support both. And we could divide up into two teams. And we could have the vengeful God and we could have the forgiving God. What we think about God and how we answer that question is so important to how we do our faith, church. It 
truly is. See, Jesus, this world is changing, but Jesus Christ has not changed. We see these different pictures of God in Scripture, and Jesus says, this is all pointing to me. If it doesn't look like me, then you need to re-understand Scripture. He's the same today, yesterday, today, and forever. Now, we went through Revelation, right? Because I was brought up with Jesus is the same yesterday, today, but when he comes back, he's going to be the angry guy who wipes everybody out, right? Somehow that didn't seem inconsistent to them. No, no, no. Same yesterday, today, and forever. That's why when we went through Revelation, we see Jesus riding on a, you know, the horse into battle with a sword in his mouth. He's not covered in the blood of his enemies. He's covered in his own blood because he... has given his life for you and me. He's not here to take life. He's here to give life. This is who Jesus is. Brian Zahn says it this way. There has never been a time when God was not like Jesus. We have not always known this, but now we do. God is like Jesus. God is exactly how Jesus depicted him in his most famous parable, a father who runs to receive, embrace, and restore a prodigal son. John says it this way in 1 John 4, 8, whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. Somebody said that over here. God is love. We find the answer to who God is at the cross. It answers the debate, is God angry and vengeful or is forgiving and loving? The cross says it all. Jesus wants us to get that. When we look at the cross, we are looking at our salvation. When Jesus says, Father, forgive them, he's not asking God to act contrary to who he is. He's not asking God to act contrary to his character or his nature. The Father doesn't say, oh, okay, I wasn't going to forgive him, but because of you, Jesus, I'll do it. No, Jesus is doing what Jesus always does. He's doing what he sees the Father doing. He's revealing the very heart and nature of the Father. Jesus is what God is like. The Father says, of course, I will forgive them. The cross is not about the satisfaction of a vengeful God, but the revelation of a supremely merciful God. Amen, church family? We all need that merciful God, you and me. The center of a flourishing faith is Jesus and the cross. Let's pray. God, I thank you for who you are, and I thank you that you so desire to have us discover who you are, to see who you are, to know who you are, that you represent God so well. We don't often represent God well, God. We mess up. We can push people away and not even realize it. It's so much easier for us to act with pride and self-righteousness and hypocrisy. We confess, God, we need your forgiveness. We come to this table, God, because we need who you are. We need your grace and your mercy. We need you for our salvation. And we thank you that you welcome us to the table. 
You welcome us to a new way of being and doing. You welcome us to a way of life. And you welcome us to have victory over death. God, we can be tempted to put so many other things at the center. In this great rummage sale of our faith, God, may we discover more clearly who you are. May we see your great love more clearly. you are generous with your love. You're not stingy. I can be stingy, we can be stingy, yet you are not. You are generous. We thank you that you are generous with your forgiveness. We thank you for who you are, Jesus. In your name, amen. Amen.